Well, regardless of how your bracket is doing or how your week has been up and down, um, I am glad that you're here to worship with us. And as you know, life is a journey. So is uh, March Madness as well. But um, anyway, so we're, we're in this series that we're doing that is called Were You There? And um, as you can tell from the video, we've been traveling the different places that Jesus walked on his way to the cross. And we're visiting each one each week and looking at the kind of parallels also to our journeys, to our spiritual journeys. We're in this season of Lent, which is a journey of itself, 40 days that are leading up into Easter and we'll celebrate Jesus' resurrection, but we're not there yet. We're not there. We're in this story. We're in this journey. We're in this process. So, um, so those of you who have worshipped with us in the previous weeks, if not, if this is your first time, once again, welcome. I'm so glad that you're here. But um, there's going to be a little bit of a, of a review, and I'm going to ask the worship team to abstain from jumping in with responses this week since they're already like multiple weeks ahead. I'm just, I'm just kidding on that one. So the first week, just a little bit of a review. The first week, the place that we visited with Jesus was called what? The wilderness, yes, the wilderness, where Jesus was, was tempted. First he was baptized, and then immediately after that he sent into the wilderness and tempted for 40 days, and um, kind of like paralleling to us in the times of wilderness that often we find ourselves in in life. And last week, last week we visited the village or the town of Capernaum, Capernaum, which is, most of us don't really know, and hopefully till before last week, don't really know that much about the town of Capernaum, but how it was the second most place that Jesus spent his time, and actually it was known for the healings and the miracles that Jesus performed there. Well, this week, this week we're traveling to our third place, and that is Samaria, Samaria. Samaria, for us, is the uncomfortable place as it was for the Jews in Jesus' time. It's the uncomfortable place, the place you'd rather avoid. And so I was thinking about this this week, um, of uncomfortable places, and as I was kind of preparing for the sermon, I found myself in quite a few of them. Um, but I want to play a little game with you guys. You might have played the game before, Never Have I Ever, but we're going to do the game, Have You Ever? So if you have ever been in one of these uncomfortable places, I invite you, if you feel comfortable, to either raise your hand. Those of you guys online, please uh, write in the comment box too. So are you ready for this? Ready? Okay. The middle seat. Yeah, that was you, right? Right? I'm just like packing, or I was making some plane ticket arrangements. I'm like, I just don't want to have that. Like, it's a short trip, right? Short plane ride or short trip, you can kind of handle it. What about a large boat in bad weather? Maybe not like that. Yeah, that's exciting, right? Talk about discomfort. How about the city of Philadelphia the Monday after an Eagles loss? Anybody been there? Yeah. You, can, you don't even have to like have watched the game. You can just walk around town and totally feel it. Um, what about the corner table with the wobbly leg? Oh yeah, yep. Starbucks down the street. My little paper is still there under my table every single week where I go to write my sermons. Um, how about this? Between two people who haven't seen each other in a while and want to catch up. That was me like this week, yeah. I was like, oh, this is going to the message, right? You never quite know where that's going to come from. How about an empty movie theater and someone sits down right next to you? Maybe not even a movie theater, maybe it's a show or something like that. 
Okay, this is a little bit embarrassing, uncomfortable places. You're out with your brother or your sister and someone thought it was your spouse. Yeah, exactly. Or how about this? You're out with your child and somebody thinks you're the grandparent. <laughs> right? Or on the other end. What, what's that? That's coming down the road. Alan's preparing for this. Um, or you're out with your child and this is the good part. Somebody thinks you're their sister or their brother. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a good one, right? Maybe uncomfortable for them. Um, but, of course, we laugh about those places, but there's other uncomfortable places, if we admit to ourselves, that we also visit. Uh, take some of these, for example. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. Um, what if someone tries to correct you or question you? Do you resist that because it's uncomfortable, right? What about conversations? at any depth at all beyond being superficial. Does that make you uncomfortable? Showing weakness, is that uncomfortable for you? Asking for help, is that uncomfortable? What about meeting strangers, going to a place that you don't know anybody, is that uncomfortable? What about being caught off guard or surprised, is that uncomfortable? What about moments where you know you were wrong and you have to apologize. Is that uncomfortable? What about success? Sometimes we don't think about this, but success, because some of us withdraw from relationships when they're going well and almost self-sabotage things. Because they're going well, we fear commitment and that's really uncomfortable, right? What about a conversation about race and racism? Does that make you uncomfortable? What about telling someone or sharing about an abusive situation or, or maybe there was a, someone was prejudiced against you, does that make you uncomfortable? My question to you today is, what is your Samaria? What is your Samaria, the place that's uncomfortable, the place that you avoid time and time again? And I want you to do a deep examination here because the key is first to figure out first, what is it that's uncomfortable? Sometimes we don't even know. We just wind up avoiding or shying away. But what is it that's uncomfortable? But the second part is, how are you potentially maybe being held back from somewhere that God and you, if you're honest, know that you need to go? How might you be held back or holding yourself back from going where God may need you to go? Somewhere that you're resisting. Somewhere called Samaria. See, Samaria is about doing the hard thing. It's about doing the hard thing. Our culture often teaches us to just go for the easy things, right, in life. But what if Samaria is about doing the hard thing, even the unexpected thing? And so we're visiting John's gospel today, John's gospel. We have four accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, in John's gospel, there's a very, very interesting story that takes place in this place of Samaria. We're going to talk a little bit more about the place itself, but I want to dive into the scripture in John four, starting with verses one through three. It'll be up on the screen. It's also in your worship guide if you want to follow along with that. So John tells us, this is sometime in Jesus's minute, three-year ministry. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Ooh, ooh. Although in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more 
to Galilee. So here's a little picture of where he was going in that. So he's in the south in this region of Judea in ancient Israel, and he's going up to the north to Galilee. Well, he had a couple choices of where to go to take his disciples with. He had mainly three routes that people would have taken at that time, one, two, and three, along the coast, along the central ridge, and along the Jordan Valley. And the kind of second option here, it's a little bit, might be a little bit small for you to see, but the route through the middle is the route through Samaria. Samaria. So Samaria, Samaria is the center of the promised land. And we know the region today as the region of the West Bank, where sometimes there's some, some action that's, that's going on there. Well, West Bank is in the same region, and it's a beautiful part of the country if you visit it. it you it would pass through this valley called the Jezreel Valley. It's a kind of a regional breadbasket. And there's this ancient town there called Megiddo. In the book of Revelation, the Jezreel Valley is known as also the Valley of Armageddon, Armageddon, where the final battle between good and evil is said to take place. And many battles over the course of history have taken place in that place up to today. But if you continue to the southern region of Samaria, you see that the land rises into that hill country, and you see the Samaritan Mountains in the distance. You also see kind of the ruins of a town. There's remains of a temple, of a temple there where people would worship Augustus. And there's an amphitheater. You also see that there's an ivory palace. This is the ruins of a palace where King Ahab and Queen Jezebel resided. The kings of ancient Israel built palaces here. It's kind of lush and green and beautiful. And there's also a place there too where it's said that John the baptizer was buried, John the Baptist. Remember, he wasn't a Baptist, he was the baptizer. You know, we're, we talked about that the first week. But back to the roots, back to the roots. Which route do you think out of these three was the least taken? The one through Samaria. The second one, right? The second one. Why, though, right? We just walked through, I kind of gave you a little Cliff Notes version of what this region is about. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. There were so many good things going on. I don't know what that is, but um, <laughs> that's, that's not Samaria, by the way. That's all good. There's a little technical difficulty here. One of the computers probably went to sleep. But, but anyway, um, Samaria was uncomfortable, just like I'm feeling right now, right? <laughs> that's great. We laugh with it. We laugh at this church. You know, we love each other. It's, it's all good. But, but Samaria's the place that you would go days out of your way to avoid. Whatever you would do, you would go out of days out of your way to avoid. And that's what Jews at the time would do. They would take the other two routes. Yeah, it would be like two to three days travel. Imagine, you know, you don't, not getting in your car. You're get, walking on foot. You're riding an animal. So two to three days extra it's not like adding an extra hour or two to your journey, but it's three days extra. And you might ask the question, why? Even those of us that have read the Bible before, maybe heard messages, be like, well, where does this kind of bad blood come from between the Jews and the Samaritans? Well, it actually started about eight centuries before Christ. Um, and if you read in the book of 2 Kings, 2 Kings 17 in the Old Testament, you'll see that the Assyrian Empire conquered Israel and they forcibly removed most of its citizens. And so at this time, all these Israelites, they're 
kicked out of their houses, you know, kind of like what happens today. We see in Ukraine, there's refugees that are being sent out of their country. But at the same time, Assyria, they go and they get these other conquered people and they take them and they pop, plop them down in that same region. And what happened was over time was these other conquered people intermarried with the remaining Israelites and their offspring were called Samaritans. Samaritans, they're kind of like half-bloods, half-breeds. They adopted some Jewish practices, but because they were not authentically Jewish, they were not allowed to worship in the temple in Jerusalem. So what they did? They were smart. They built their own. They built their own in a place called Mount Gerizim in Samaria. And they considered themselves to be the true Israelites because they had never left the land. There's this Hebrew phrase, this phrase in the Hebrew language called Amharetz. Aretz. I'm going to butcher this. Amharetz. Can you guys say that with me? Amharetz. Amharetz. And it was used. It was kind of a derogatory term that was used in Jesus' time to indicate outsiders, and it literally means the people of the land. It literally means the people of the land. And it was basically to make clear that the people that it was being used to address were not the people that should be residing there. These are the people that were not promised the land. It's kind of like the less than we are, a very derogatory term here. And yet, these are the people that Jesus spent most of his time these are the people, the, the sick, the hungry, people, the Amharats, they were the people, the outsiders, the outcasts, of which the Samaritans were one of them. And so people would avoid Samaria at all costs because this is like the, the half-breeds live there, the Amharats live there. Like, we don't want to be near them. You know, I, I thought about this. Nobody took a Samaritication. Nobody took a vacation to Samaria. Like, that was not something that you did. It's with Samaritication. And it makes it interesting, though, because when we go on in the scripture, we see that John tells us something interesting. John 4, 4 says, now he had to go through Samaria. Jesus, he had to go through Samaria. Practically, no, he didn't. He didn't have to go through Samaria. But I think this shows us something. This shows us something about Samaria in the rest of this story as it unfolds because Samaria is where Jesus shows us the hard thing may be a God thing. The hard thing may be a God thing. Jesus hadn't, didn't have to go to, through Samaria. He had two other very well-known routes that he could have taken. So this is super, super surprising. But think of the words like had to. Has there ever been something that you didn't want to do that you wound up doing because you knew you needed to do it? You know, you didn't want to, but you had to. And the word that John uses here in the Greek is this little Greek word, three-letter word called dei. Can you guys say that with me? Dei, D-E-I, dei. And, and this word dei, whenever it's used, it has a kind of a divine element to it like a divine influence or divine, like God is like urging or pointing, divinely orchestrated. And I think this shows us, though, that how we feel may not be the best indicator of what God desires us to do. Sometimes we use our feelings, right, to direct us in discernment and in where we should go. But after all, how would you ever do anything if you relied solely on your feelings? 
You know, bosses, teachers, you know, what do you do if a student or employee tells you like, oh, I just didn't feel like it, right? You tell them, well, guess what? Here you go. Here's the F or here's, you know, or the dismissal or this is what you do. You know, what if every single time you woke up in the morning, you're like, I just don't feel like doing X, Y, and Z. Like, you'd never leave. You'd never, you'd never do anything. See, our tendency is to see that there's no good or to think that there's nothing good in something that's unpleasant. But yet, we potentially miss out on something that can actually help us or point us to the place that we need to be or the conversation we need to have a part of even though it's hard or the the person that we need to interact with because maybe they're just different than we are. See, being hard doesn't automatically make things bad. See, comfort zones, comfort zones don't keep our lives safe. They keep our lives small. They keep our lives small and confined. And like I said, if you just went by your feelings all the time, you wouldn't even leave your house. You wouldn't even leave your bed. You would just stay and do, and do nothing. But it keeps our lives small instead of expanding. And I think that's part of what Jesus has shown his disciples here. See, Jesus' actions are defining what he is about. He's always going to the the lost, the lonely, the people that are different than him, the outcasts, the sinners, the rejects. What's interesting, the beginning scripture that we read, Jesus is going away from the Pharisees. The Pharisees, that's who was expected, the religious people. That's who he was expected to spend his time with because he's supposed to be this this son of God and this, this savior. But yet, he goes away from them. Isn't that interesting? Makes us question as the, the big C church, you know, if Jesus were here today, would he be going away from us too, to the margins, to the places, to the, the people that are on the fringes and on the edges? Because sometimes the longer that we are Christians, longer that we're religious, our tendency is great to become Pharisees. The sins that we have are often more dangerous because they become more subtle. They become matters of the heart. But getting back to the story, the place that Jesus ends up is in the southeast. It's in a town called Sechem, Sechem known as Sychar during Jesus' time. It's built along the mountainsides, as you see in the, this picture. Towering above is Mount Gerizim. That's where the Samaritan temple was built. And it's interesting, today, if you would go there to visit, below this mountain, it lives one of the only remaining communities of Samaritans that there is in the world. Believe it or not, there are Samaritans still living today, about 500 of them or so. This is a picture of them having some of their worship time. And so there's a church also that's built there, a church called St. Fotina Orthodox Church in a monastery that's built into the hillside that marks a significant site where Jesus stopped and had a conversation. Remember John 4, 4. Now he had to go through Samaria. And then the story continues. Jesus goes to Sychar, sits down at a well midday while his disciples go off to get food. And then we see this happens. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, interesting. Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. 
sir, the woman said. You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater? Are you greater than our father Jacob, right, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, also his sons and his livestock? Flashback to the Joseph story. Um, But Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. So it's a, it's a little story, right? right? There's this woman comes to the well at midday. So Samaria is also where Jesus reveals something deeper. The places we don't want to go are the places that something deeper is often revealed. Uh, it's, it's interesting, at that site, like I described, there's this Orthodox church community that was built, and the Orthodox church, uh, which is kind of a denomination, um, they, they named this woman, believe it or not, they named, named her uh, Fotina. They gave her a name because she's never really named in the story. And she's called Saint Fotina. And, and so we see that there's a problem, though, with Fotina or the Samaritan woman, whatever you want to call her, uh, at the beginning of this passage, that there's a glaring problem because in the ancient times, uh, typically women would go, they'd be the water fetchers, like that was their job. They would go and get water. And in the early morning, because that was the cooler time to go, and, and of course, because everybody was going, that was like the first water cooler. That was where you met everybody, you know, or your coffee shop. You met everybody, you had some fellowship, talking time, catching up. And, but midday, midday is when this woman goes. And she's by herself. So one of a couple things was probably taking place. She was either not welcome with the other women or she was choosing not to associate with the other women. She was either avoiding, she was either avoiding, or she was not being welcomed in the first place. It's interesting. She was considered Amharats by her own people who were Amharats to the Jews. Doesn't that happen, Right? There's groups that, like, you're this, you're an outsider, you're an outcast, and then, the, then you have outcasts within that, and then it kind of goes on and on. It's interesting, like, this stuff has not changed. Uh, but this was not just any well that Jesus visits and that this woman visits. It's Jacob's well. It's an allusion to Jacob in the Old Testament scriptures. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the whole Technicolor Dreamcoat story we just did a whole series on. It was where Jacob had met Rachel in the Old Testament, so interesting parallel, guy meets woman, you know, they wind up getting married or whatever, uh, and there was this beautiful, and she was beautiful, and she was like perfect, and, but yet we have Jesus who meets this outcast woman, this Samaritan woman, and his request to her to get water would have been unheard of at the time. Not only was there a gender difference, you know, have unmarried men talking to women in that way. But there was a religious difference, the whole Samaritan thing, and a status difference. Who knows what she had done? I, I kind of think of it this way. I'm not a big country music fan, by the way, but I do like Garth Brooks in some ways. And there's a song, you probably know it, um, Friends in Low Places. Jesus probably sang that a whole bunch of times. He had lots of friends in low places. But when you really encounter Jesus... He starts showing you things that you haven't seen. 
See, she never thought more than surface level, you know, drinking water, meeting your, your needs, your bodily needs, and yet he stirs up in her a thirst. See, I think people, all of us in some way are spiritually thirsty. But I think like the woman, sometimes we just don't recognize it as that. We may not even know it until something stirs it up. And that's what an encounter with Jesus does. Starts showing things that you haven't seen. And he gets into this conversation about living water. Living water is not just kind of this, this illusion, but it was a term that was used to symbolize the water that would flow out of rivers and out of streams. Moving water. That's why they would call it living and it was believed that living water, moving water, was, was symbolic of God, God's provision. Because you can't make, you and I can't make a river or a stream. As opposed to kind of wells and cisterns and irrigation systems that were all man-made, that were all out of human hands. So this living water is symbolic of God as opposed to uh, the well that is symbolic of human control and means. See, the woman... She'd been relying on the well, relying on, her, on herself. And she didn't realize that she was thirsty and that nothing that she would go after would satisfy her. See, thirst is a symptom of a deeper need. And sometimes it's misdirected. Sometimes it's in a different direction than what we thought. And, and I think that goes for most of us. That some of us are kind of on the edge of faith, like we're still figuring it out. And I say, that's wonderful. Like, we are glad that you're here and a part of this community but there might be something inside you that, though you're not there yet, it wants to believe. You want to believe. I would call that spiritual thirst. And for, for us, if we want to grow and become something different, you know, to, to be a blessing, if we want our relationships to mature, to become what, what God may have for us, then we have to embrace the discomfort and we have to allow Jesus to reveal that there may be something deeper going on. There may be a deeper need inside of us. We have to do the hard thing, the hard thing. But Samaria is also where Jesus brings clarity. See, he doesn't stop there in the conversation. Because up to this point, this woman has not really fully understood. Jesus is kind of talking about, I have this living water, and she's like, hmm, that's interesting. Like, maybe I would like some of that. Like, give me this water. I won't get thirsty. I don't have to come here. She doesn't really get it. So what Jesus does, he goes there. He goes to the super uncomfortable spot. And what he does, he asks her a question. He says, well, where's your husband? And she says, well, I don't have a husband. And then Jesus Jesus has probably never taken a pastoral counseling course, but he then goes on to reveal that she's had five and she's living with the man now who isn't her husband. Very interesting, right? It's like, wow, how to start a conversation, huh? But he doesn't do so judgmentally. Uh, there, there's lots of theories here about who this woman was. It's kind of inconclusive about what it is. Well, who were these five husbands? Um, one source that I read, so it basically said that she was a player, right? She played around. Others have said something a little bit different, to say that maybe she was a woman who couldn't have children, and she was rejected one time from one husband to the next. It was a source of shame for her, that she was a victim herself. We have to keep ourselves from judging necessarily about the situation, but there's a complete stranger of Jesus who begins to reveal the truth about her. But then, 
Jesus continues, verse 21. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know, but we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet, verse 23, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And what does Jesus say? Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he, am he. See, Jesus brings clarity here. He brings things into focus. There was a religious controversy, you know, get that. Imagine that. There was a religious controversy on who was right. Who was the right religion, basically? Who was the right kind of Jewish denomination in this case? Where was the right place to worship? And Jesus, while he has his own thoughts on that, he says, yet, right? Jesus is basically saying that's not what matters it's not about being right because there's this new era that is beginning, that God is doing something new here. It's not about the ritual. It's not about the practice. It's not about being right necessarily. But it's about what's going on in the heart, about spirit and truth. You know, don't we often get focused on the wrong things? In the church and society, we focus, we get hyper-focused on the wrong things and we strive so hard to prove ourselves and to be right and everybody else just doesn't even care anymore. Religion can become a mess because of that. But Jesus is getting to the point here. He's saying to this woman, like, this is not about, about the right practices. He, he's even alluding to that this is not about the doing piece because eternal life is not a reward, it's grace. It's grace, it's given. Like, like, just like the woman, many of us you know, give up because we, we can never be good enough, and that's true because we need grace. Jesus meets her where she is. And sometimes we make assumptions, but Jesus brings clarity here. Instead of turning us to avoid, he wants to bring us closer. And sometimes it's only by doing the hard things, by one after another, one step after another, one, one conversation after another, that the pieces come together, that you begin to gain clarity on who you are and what God desires of you. I think of it like the thing that you get from either Walmart or Ikea, right? It's, in, it comes, it's the furniture, it's in a box, and it gives you little instructions on how you got to set things up, right? The, on top of the box, it says what? Assembly required. And there's like 94 million pieces when you empty out the box and it's like a mess. And it takes time. And your back hurts from crouching over. But the thing is, you can't stop prematurely or you will miss the fullness of the creation of what's in front of you. And I think for many of us, it's just like what Jesus is bringing, that, that clarity. But we have to enter Samaria first. We can't give up at the first time our back starts feeling bad while we're trying to put the, the, the seat together. We have to enter Samaria first. We have to go there too, to do the hard thing. But the last thing so that Jesus shows in Samaria is that he gives a new calling often in Samaria. 
So the story tells us, then leaving her water jar. So the woman, she's surprised, right? This is the first time Jesus has revealed himself. A couple verses later, then the woman leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? So they came out of the town and made their way toward him. See, Jesus sought out a woman who everybody thought they should avoid. But transformation happens here. Transformation happens. Because this is the first person in John's gospel to whom Jesus first openly reveals himself to be the Messiah. But then second of all, because of that, she goes on and she tells everyone. She becomes the first missionary to the Samaritans. A brand new role, a brand new identity. So the question for you, could what you're avoiding be part of your calling? Could what you're avoiding right now be a part of your calling? Could maybe what we avoid as a, as a church or as a community, could that be part of our calling, the place, the Samaria that's uncomfortable, that nobody else is going? Because entering Samaria might change someone's trajectory, and it might be yours. So it's interesting, the story of the woman at the well, the story of Samaria, the place, the uncomfortable place that we don't want to go, we don't want to avoid. What if it's about doing the hard thing? Going there, what's your Samaria? I don't know what that is, but I do know the easy thing. The reward for avoiding discomfort is remaining the same. There will be things that don't feel good that you will want to withdraw from. You will go three days out of your way to avoid. But that doesn't make Samaria go away. It doesn't make it go away. It's, it's to know what might be triggering for you, but to identify what is your Samaria and not to miss it. Because it might be that land of transformation, a land of opportunity. And you don't want to miss Samaria you don't want to miss going through Samaria, because if you do, you may just miss the unexpected thing that God wants to do. Jesus went there. Jesus not only went to Samaria, but then he went to a cross. Jesus ultimately did the hard thing, probably the hardest thing, the hardest thing we can ever imagine. And it's our call to follow in his steps as people of grace, as people who are his disciples, as people who desire and seek God with all of our hearts.